Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. I've always taken my health very seriously, but I must admit it's very tough to have a balanced diet every single day, especially when I'm traveling and on the road a lot. Then I found Athletic Greens. I'm so excited to partner with them personally and for this podcast. I actually started taking AG1 long before this partnership even came about. So what is this stuff? Think of AG1 as your all-in-one health insurance. I know I do. I've never been one for taking a million different supplements or vitamins. What a mission. So this is the perfect all-in-one solution. With one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy recovery, and helps enhance your focus. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, artificial anything, all while still tasting good. What I find is it's beyond easy to use and that's definitely what I need. All you need to do is mix one scoop of AG1 with water and take it first thing in the morning. After a long flight or travel, it is a must for me too. It's that simple. They also make travel packs which I like to take on the road and to events. I notice a big difference when I include AG1 into my routine. I feel more focused and energized to get my day going. I seem to be more alert as well. Let's all be honest. We all know we don't eat enough vegetables or consume the healthiest meals some of the time, especially when we get busy. We all want something quick and easy which will help us in life. AG1 supports better sleep quality, recovery, mental clarity, and alertness. Now, I don't care what you do. I think we can all agree this is super important. AG1 is trusted by many professional athletes and health experts. To make trying it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash moving the needle. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash moving the needle to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I'll link it in the show notes as well. Hello and how's it world? Welcome back to the show. If you're new, this is Moving the Needle podcast. I'm Andrew Nietling. I'll be your host, a former downhill mountain bike racer, but this is not about me. I've honestly said it before. I've had legends on the show. I've had royalty, but this is a, a bit of both. Uh, uh, it's such an honor to have a person that I don't think any other mountain bikers had somewhat of 500 covers. They've moved to another country and been a huge success. They've met the president of America. They've played themselves in a mainstream American TV show. And the list goes on. I mean, the bio was so long, I actually just couldn't read it all because I want to get to know no other than Hans No Way Ray an official legend of mountain biking. You know, that that word gets thrown around pretty loosely sometimes, but I think you've really earned that space in the mountain bike world for what you've done uh, and paved the way. Um, how are we doing, Hans? What an honor. I'm doing great, Needle. Thanks for having me on the show and thanks for the kind words. Could you have ever imagined that your life would have turned out this way? Oh yeah, I planned it all along. No, just yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had no idea, man. I 
I've been, I've been, yeah, no idea. My wildest dreams, even, I mean, even since I've been 16 years old, I, I've been saying I'm going to do this another year or two. And now I'm knocking at 57 and I'm still saying the same thing. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask, but you've, you've, you've dropped it. Knocking on 57, still riding bikes, still sponsored, still promoting brands. But as well as from what I can tell, still enjoying two wheels. Uh, it doesn't seem like you're just doing it for the sake of it. Like it seems like you're still challenging yourself and in, enjoying the rush that bikes brings us, even though maybe with your age, certainly certain things are not as easy as they used to be. Yeah, for sure. I mean, things change and physically and also your goals, but you always need to have the passion in this line of work. Otherwise, you're in the wrong job and, and you not you're not be able to do a good job. Of course, there comes downtime sometimes when you feel a little bit less enthusiastic. But I think that's how, how it is with everything in life and with every job. But overall, I love it. And I kind of even rediscovered the love of the sport, you know. Thanks, you know, I've been, you know, I admit it, I'm into e-bikes and I love them. And I think they're a great thing. They came at a good time for me. I haven't given up my analog bikes, so I'm still riding those too. But the e-bikes kind of brought that inner 14-year-old kid out of me again that just wants to go out and ride and play and and try, see, the, see where the next frontier might be. Yeah, I hear you loud and clear. I actually, the guys in the shop said, we haven't seen you this excited about a new bike. And I said, well, I'm definitely spoiled and I'm grateful, but you know, sometimes it's a new year model. So it's a new colorway and, 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 and we're making these small changes, but I got uh, Scott's Lumen, which is a, you know, a lesser powered e-bike, but the weight is so light. Um, and I was, I mean, I didn't even let them finish tightening half the bolts. I was out the back of the shop <laughs> up on the trails. So I know what you mean. It, it, it is sort of a different, it's bikes, but it's like a different genre. Um, and if you've been doing it so long, uh, it's maybe a little bit me, but you even more, of course, it's going to be some days it's mundane, right? It's like, you can't tell me a doctor's still passionate about going into the surgery, you know, after 30, 40 years, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's like, you know, when you, you know, like you, you, in the past for me, because I was never an endurance guy. It, it mountain biking was a little bit too much of that in order to do it on the level I want to do it. I wanted to rather have fun, and that sometimes came a bit short. And I think this is like a it balances it out into the direction that I kind of uh, like to see it. I was always into technical riding, into playing around, into having fun, not taking it too seriously. You know, even back in the early '90s, when everything and everybody was about stopwatches and lycra. I would like, you know, I wanted to have fun with it and start doing videos outside of competitions, you know, and so, so I think the the e-bike kind of serves that way for 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 me and many others. Yeah, I mean, I think we have shared some similarities. I come from a downhill side, and you came from this trials, experimental, creative background, and probably slogging up a a two hour climb to do a bit of technical descent. Like you say, you just want to do the technical descent. But I mean, for people that have been literally living under a rock or maybe they're very young, obviously that must be a bit different for you. You know, like us that have been in the industry a long time, know exactly who you are, what you've done or most of what you've done until I read that bio. 
But uh, maybe we can take a, like a little bit down memory lane. So you come from a trials background, uh, and growing up, was that sport bigger in Germany's? And I know you've got a Swiss parent as well, and you've taken like a, you have a Swiss passport. But was yeah. the sport bigger there than it was, say, in the states back in the day? Trials mountain biking per se. Yeah, because trials is actually a European uh, sport, unlike BMX and mountain biking. So trials kind of started in Europe alongside motorcycle trials competition and it eventually stood on its own feet. And it was mainly performed in the, I mean, it started as early as the 70s, but um, it was mainly performed in the 80s and 90s on 20-inch bikes in Europe. And in the mid-80s, this American trials rider, Kevin Norton, he came over. He was national champ, and and he was sponsored. We were all amateurs in Europe, you know. I mean, the top riders might have gotten the free bike from a shop or distributor, and some of us made some pocket money doing trial shows at the local car dealership or so. But um, it wasn't – and this American rider, he was full-on sponsored by BMX companies and kitted out and – and he wasn't even in the top 30, but he was a super cool guy. And he wanted to make trials big in America. And he told me one of those visits, Hans, there's a new sport in America. It's called mountain biking. And in the early mountain bike races, they had these stage races. And every rider had to do the downhill, cross country, and the trials competition on the same 26-inch stock mountain bike. And so the level in Europe was much higher. And he wanted me to come over and show them that. And they had a small group of riders who in America who also would ride the 20 inch things and they would look up and over to the Europeans. And when I came over, it was even before the boom really kicked off, but mountain biking was kind of already flourishing and, and it was at the right time at the right place. And Kevin Norton introduced me to everything and everybody. And um, before I knew it, I was like, hmm, maybe I'll stay a little bit longer than these initial couple of months I wanted to come. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating reading into some of those things. Uh, I know I saw some of the, the amazing ads and videos you've done, like on the freeway and the 405 in California, and you had that, I guess it was a swatch ad where you jumped over a taxi. But like you obviously are earning no money. You get invited over to America. What's the thought process when you're like, oh, I, I guess I'll stay a little bit longer? Because we were joking off air, which I should have recorded, was – you know, I think most people are winging it and think other people maybe have it all figured out, but we're all just winging it at certain levels, you know? Yeah, that's, that is true. And you never really know. Um, you know, I learned that a while ago, you know, and it's such a, a good phrase, you know, the winging it thing, because I think everybody in the industry is, especially now, and you often feel like you're the only one, but I think everybody is, not just the sponsored writers, I think even the the sponsors are winging it and the media are winging it and and the promoters are winging it even more often <laughs> so, but, um, <laughs> but now it's uh it, it's initially kevin like he he wanted to hook me up right away with like a bike company and he was sponsored at the time by haro and so he figured hey, it would be so cool if GT also had a trials bike. And a few other mountain bike brands had already a trials bike. And he really wanted the sport to grow. And so he introduced me to them. He introduced me to the Laguna Rats, one of the oldest mountain bike club in the world, that who taught me to be a real mountain biker. 
But one of those days after like I was only two weeks in America, we, he got a phone call and he said, hey, it's Swatch on the phone. Uh, they want us to be in New York this afternoon. We were in Los Angeles. Apparently tickets are at the airport. So we packed the bikes, drive to LAX, fly to New York. And this famous advertisement of me jumping over a taxi cab on Broadway. And we started talking to the Swatch people. And, you know, Swatch were the original supporter, mainstream company that supported extreme sports way before Red Bull. They actually, Red Bull copied Swatch when they first started out. And then, of course, later they took it to a whole different level. And... But Swatch at the time, besides the watches, they did also um, clothing. And when we did the photo shoot, I said, hey, you know, if you want, I can wear your clothing. And this was like sweatpants and loose cut stuff, not Lycra stuff, you know. So it was kind of already streetwear before streetwear even hit BMX freestyle. And and I said, if you, if you want to sponsor me, you know, like I can wear your stuff for 500 bucks a month or so, you know. And they... And then, like, they sent me a contract a few weeks later, and it was a thousand dollars a month. And that's something that never ever happened to me again in my career that somebody gave me twice as much than I asked for. <laughs> but <laughs> Swatch also had these ideas of sending me all over the country to these shopping malls and doing shows together with skateboarders. I would tour with Rodney Mullen and with Ross Cobb and with with all these people. And, and that but was Swatch's idea. Like they yeah, kind they of did. said, we're doing this anyway in action sports, like join them. Well, they did a PR tour to go to all the shopping malls and do a, a promotion there in the parking lot in front of a Macy's or a department store with us. And sometimes they had a little fashion show etched on and Rodney and they had the local kids would all come out with their skateboards. And, and I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. This could be a good way for me to not only see America, learn the language, but I, I was about to study marketing in Europe. I started to go to the university. I took one semester, took a vacation semester and never went back. But the the way I made me made me feel comfortable with it is I asked Scott Swatch if I could do an internship while I come back to America. And they had no idea what I was talking about, but they said, yeah, yeah, you can do that. So that gave me the confidence to stall, leave my school behind and come back to America. And then they had a lot of work for me. And I also, in the meantime, I signed with GT up. That was 36 years ago, and I'm still with them to this day. And, and the Swatch sponsorship lasted also almost 20 years. And um, yeah. And then a few years later, this this was all in 87, 88. And then in the early 90s, the mountain bike boom really kicked in. And that's when the golden years of mountain biking started. And we had all these factory teams and big events and stuff got televised and big sponsors came into the sport. And um, but that was that was a few years later. And in a crazy way, do you think it was just right place, right time? And obviously saying yes to these opportunities. Not, And I don't want to gloss over the part where you spent your childhood practicing and getting these skills. Like You're not one of the legend of the sports and being sponsored for so long from one brand from being good at business. You, know, you have to be good at your skill as well. Uh, but, I mean, looking back, you've just mentioned winging it and I think it comes with experience realizing, shucks, we're all kind of winging it. And if you have that understanding, it makes you feel a little calmer, I guess. But for sure, that was right place, right time 
to be in America. Yeah. And you go to the swatch thing and then, but you see a little opportunity where I can wear your gear. Yeah. There was definitely right time, right place. But I, I think a lot of people in life get opportunities, but they often don't jump on them because they're afraid and they're so new or, or crazy or they have other stuff going on or they're slacking with their responses. And, and I was at the right time at the right place, but I also knew how to grab an opportunity and, and then also to make it work and last, maybe I was always, I had always a marketing sense and I was always trying to find ways to make the sponsors happy because I knew if the sponsor is happy, then I would be taken care of too, hopefully. And so I kind of understood early on that it was a business. People weren't just giving me money for, you know, ultimately Swatch wanted to sell more watches or GT wanted to sell more bikes. And I tried to make myself, like, like an, you know, you had to get creative a little bit. Like, I got also mixed in with the whole BMX freestyle team. GT was bigger than they had a huge summer tour going on with four different teams all over the world, really, but mainly in the US touring. And it was all a bunch of young kids, great riders. And they asked me, hey, do you want to join the summer tour? And it was like driving in a van, like 12 hours each day from one bike shop to the next, sleeping in one motel, the six room, like eating out of the car. And they offered me like $80 a day. And I was like, $80 a day? I got more than that in Germany from a car dealership if I would do a trial show, you know? It's like, I cannot I cannot afford to not go to college or university and all that. So I kind of sometimes did shows with them, but I started doing my own stuff. So I would contact the guy, the local trade show in LA or whatever, San Diego, and say, hey, I can do a trial show right here in the middle of your thing. If you set up a course and let me hang up some banners. And then I would go to five different sponsors and tell them each, hey, if you give me $100, I hang up your banner in the middle of this event, where if they would have been a sponsor of the event, they would have paid two, 3000 And I got them a banner here, and I was the attraction with my trial show, and the local TV would film me. And it was a lot more work for me to do all that and hang up the banners, but I walked home with five, $600 at the end of the weekend or, or the week or the day, I mean. And so you had to become creative. That's my point. And, and find ways to make everybody happy. And in this case, the promoter was stoked. I came for free. The, the spectators were stoked. The media was stoked. There was some action going on. And the sponsors were stoked. And ultimately, I was stoked. <laughs> yeah, but that's incredible. That's like basically uh, the... A modern day content creation you know you're making the content i.e the show um, and then you're selling it back to the sponsors and and it's such a win-win and in today's day and age they would be building up a youtube channel right or building up your instagram and then offering uh, these tags and, and things that we do anyway right like adding the value but where do you think this came from just naturally you had a marketing sense i mean you said you were going to study marketing but where did you get those thought processes? Because my dad taught me, you know, sponsorship is a two-way street. And we would do CVs at the end of the year and and lots of thank yous and, and things like that. So luckily, it, it was handed down to me a bit. And I understand yeah. what you're saying. But not everyone is taught that or and sees that, especially if you're young and really good at your trade. Often you just think, like, people are giving me stuff because of whatever. They don't, you don't understand. Like, you've got to always try to provide value back. You know, I, I would, I would like, 
listen to other people's scenarios in other sports usually and I would keep my eyes and ears open and a lot of things I would hear and learn and then forgot that where I learned it from like it happens to so many of us you know like you hear a good idea and the next thing you go like wow that is an excellent idea but you already forgot who gave it to you and I'm sure I'm guilty of that too but um, yeah I would I would like just try to be creative and like you say it hasn't really changed much nowadays you might go to a sponsor and say hey i want to do a video it's going to cost x amount and the sponsor is going to go like i don't have that money right now there's too many people eating from the cake as it is you know we don't you know so then you might have to get creative and do the same thing i did back then go to five different sponsors have them all chip in the fifths and then you might still have a video and everybody is happy again and everybody you know so so yeah, I I would I would look to other sports like for example, there came the point. This was long before the word free ride was introduced into mountain biking. You know, it came from snowboarding, obviously. But long before that, I would do stuff with extreme skiers, and I watched their movies, and I worked with some extreme ski filmmakers. And I remember thinking one day, going, "Oh, I don't want to be a mountain bike racer anymore. I want to be an extreme mountain biker." because the skiers called themselves extreme skiers. So in the early days, we called free riding extreme mountain biking, and we started doing, but I learned from the skiers how they did it and how they applied it and how, oh, wow, there's guys outside the World Cup circuit. You know, I grew up around ski races, like watching them in Europe. They were on TV all the time, and it was huge, and that's all I knew about skiing. And then all of a sudden, I see these guys jumping off cliffs and doing crazy stuff, and and having this whole lifestyle with fun and stuff. And I wanted to kind of adapt that. And that's kind of where I took my very first videos back in the day. And that was also at the time when there wasn't any videos. There wasn't even internet. And there was certainly no YouTube. We had we did VHS tapes. And because there was so few of them, or there was none really, they were really spreading like wildfire. And that really, that really was the point. And that was around 91 when when my career took off because there was a few times between my arrival in 87 and then where I almost went back home. There was pressure also from the parents and like, Hey, when are you, what are you going to do when this is all over? And then you don't have an education and all this and nobody could imagine to make money with riding a bicycle. So I had to fight against all these uh, stigmas, but I also, um, um, yeah, so there was all there was all kinds of little things you had to deal with at the time and um and but often yeah you learn from other sports. What were those conversations like with your parents? It must be tough for them, especially not being close to you if they're in another foreign country. Um and there isn't the internet to show them every day how successful you are or could be. What were those conversations like? Well, you know, they 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 knew I was good in my sport but they also knew the sport was very small and there was no action sports professional action sport athlete yet especially not any they would have heard of in germany you know and or switzerland at the time where they lived but yeah they had the same doubts like and they were smart you know you have to see think long run and that still applies today even though if you're really fast downhiller your career can be very short unless you you understand the whole business and the 
I mean, you know, the not only winning races, but have longevity, having sponsors, you know, dealing with the sponsor. So they want to work with you and, and all this. And, and, and then like maybe evolve into something else after your racing days are over, like so many guys do now, but all those examples weren't really there. And people would just go like, and then what are you going to do? when you're 26 or seven, you're going to work at the gas station for the rest of your life, or are you going to, you know, like you should really get your education nailed in or your, I didn't even do an apprenticeship, which is very common in Europe. And I'm actually glad I didn't because if I would have gotten one, because I couldn't get one. And if I would have gotten one, I probably would have never came to America for that initial visit. And I would be just like, you know, like living a, probably a pretty normal life over in Germany now. Yeah, but it's crazy like that. Uh, these that One door closes, you might have been bummed at the time, and then you say yes to these these other things. But um, looking back, I mean, you've done some crazy trips. I mean, are there some that stand out? Just going through that bio and, and some of the unique first things mm. you've done or where the bike has taken you, what's some of the unique ones that pop to mind? Yeah, so initially it was all about trials competition. Then I started doing some mountain bike racing. I did even some downhills and slaloms. But then then I started, and I at the whole time I always did a lot of trial shows. And my stage was very international, especially GT would send me all over the world to events and stuff. And then I started doing the videos and did video productions. And slowly I evolved into this adventure team. And I started the Huntray adventure team. And... That would I would go on these expeditions and places where where nobody had been before, and there was places like that back then, not, unlike now where yeah. you cannot find the new spot on the map. You know, there was so many countries where I was the first international mountain biker to go visit, or the first guy to try to traverse a certain mountain or descend a certain thing, or so. And I always tried to tie in a little bit of a storyline that was more than just biking to get a little mainstream appeal, but also my own hobbies were like these mysteries and archaeologies and mystical sites, you know, like Machu Picchu or the pyramids. And and I got to check all these things off my bucket list in the process while going there doing films and usually TV documentaries. We did stories for the magazines and and, you know, back then it was all about print magazines, basically, and a little bit of videos, DVDs, and and there was still not really an internet platform for anybody, no social media, and but we would get the stuff on mainstream TV, and that was a cool thing, and the stuff would air, like, often in 60 countries, and they do reruns, and it's a half-hour-long show or a one-hour-long show, which, which was really good for the audience to get to know you, but also your sponsors. And, you know, there was ways to really get a lot out of it. So that's, so back to your question. Sorry, I got a little bit sidetracked here. No, please carry on. That's that's what it's all about. But so I went to probably over 70 countries uh, over the years. And we went to some pretty remote places from looking for headhunters in Borneo or an alien dwarf tribe in China. No and, way. Did uh, you find we, that? Uh, we got pretty close. We got like tell, shadowed by the Secret Service. We got. Tell me um, more. Is this the it's China a trip? Long, it's a pretty long story, yeah. But um, 
there's this mysterious tribe of little people with big heads, and apparently they have a, a DNA count from nowhere on this planet, a blood a blood crowd, blood group count, and the guys who were I, I've been connected to some of the guys in this ancient astronaut uh, uh, world, and I got I had some inside information and. Anyway, we got pretty close, and then they shut the door, and one of us admitted at the end of the trip, yes, this tribe exists, but none of your business. Really? And So it does exist? Well, I got even I got even uh, contacted over 10 years later by the History Channel. They were, doing a, they were doing a documentary on that tribe, and they told me that I was the closest to ever get to it or something. And it's a long story. It's really uh, – they would make a full podcast, but um, the – yeah, but you've got me more. so interested now. Yeah. You've got to give us yeah. a little bit more. We got some well, time. Well, um, what are you allowed to tell me? Because it sounds like well, it's not that it's I not mean, allowed. We we ended up empty-handed, but not literally. And we had all this information. And I happened to meet a the top guy of the Chinese tourism board at a bike trade. There was a bike trade show in Chicago, and below was a travel show. And I went down there and. Co- con- collecting brochures about where could I do my next adventure. And I got to talk to this guy and they agreed to co-sponsor our trip to China. So I put on the itinerary, all these famous things like the, uh, the, we went to Shaisang, the old capital where the giant Buddha is and where the terracotta warriors are. And, and then like I put this little tribe that I knew from my other connection, this little village in there, which is not even on any maps, this village. And initially they said, no problem, you can you can go there. They approved the whole itinerary. And a week or so before the trip, they sent the message that everything is cool except that one little village, you can't go anymore, it's flooded. At the time they had these big floods in China, but the floods were 2,000 miles away from there. And they were, and I, I figured, ah, we'll, we'll just deal with it when we get there. We'll, I can still like talk my way into it. And little did I know about Chinese uh, bureaucracy at the time that there's no no changing plans once they made plans so but anyway so we went there and i kept pushing yeah we still need to go to this village and they they said and they said they always like were kind of vague about it like no we can't go or yes we try and pushed us out and out and the trip carried on and um as further we got into as more we kind of talked to them and i had nothing to lose and i remember I told them all I knew about this little tribe of these, I think they were called Trogma people, a Tropa, Tropa was that tribe called. And, um, and what I all heard about, about the books and the people I talked to. And, and, and as soon as I <clears throat> left the room, they grilled everybody in my group, like, um, who's, what book is that? And they, the map I showed him, they looked who printed the map and they were all like, and there was, the guy was obviously from the Secret Service shadowing us the whole time. And um, and he was pretending he was with the tourism board, you know, like kind of traveling with us. But um, at the end, they were like, he did say to me, there is, you know, this, this tribe exists, but it's not here and it's none of your business and stop asking and, and, that was kind of you know the end so we didn't get to go but the story goes on and like i said i was contacted by the history channel and 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 somebody else told me a story of somebody who apparently ran into this tribe and and um saw this 
person on this river you know like this little cray person with a big head so but anyway it's all a bit far-fetched here but but anyway i love well, this kind hang of on. stuff yeah but that's incredible but tell me has if i look it up now on tv and internet there's still not a show or too much documentation about the tribe or now there is still, or is it there's, this there's still not a whole lot and it all started really? out, this, this was a hundred years ago, a guy lived with that tribe, apparently. There was a, they have all these weird tribes in, in, in China, and they, the government even moves them around, relocates them. But, and there was these books from back in the 40s and stuff, and this guy says he got even married into this family, and they had a different blood count, and they were all, like, really interesting and different different people, not really humans, and... And then, like, people knew about these reports. And then, like, in the in the 80s or 90s, this Associated Press came out with this with this um, report that there's a, a tribe of little people that ride, like, folding bikes. And they have big heads. And apparently, they all, like, deformed from mercury into drinking water. And then some people were like, oh, wait a minute, this could be that tribe they were talking about in the 40s, the Tropa and all this. And there's these, there's these famous, it goes on and on. There's these famous yeah, yeah, stone, yeah. stone discs, the stone discs of Bayan Kaya Ula. And they have, they like a record and they are made out of the hardest possible stone material, not even from this, from this planet. It's a composition stone that has grooves in it in a certain way and symbols and it's some really mysterious, like a record, really. And these stone discs are all connected with this tribe. So anyway, it's it's we don't know yet what it is, <laughs> but it was fun chasing it. I, I hate the word conspiracy theory, but it does seem like there's some hard cover ups going on surrounding this stuff that people don't want some of this information out there. And you almost got there because of the bike and, and your willful adventure. This is fascinating. Yeah, and the, you know, and the cool thing is that they don't feel, they think like, oh, there's this bike guy. He does a sports show. That's great for our country, for tourism. You know, it's going to be all over TV. And they don't see you as a threat because we did a similar thing in Egypt. And I got to, I got to go to the pyramids and go inside. And I interviewed the main guy, Sari Havasi, that silver-haired guy you always see on National Geographic who basically has the golden key to everything in Egypt and had it always. And and then all of a sudden, we also brought up some mysterious stuff that wasn't mainstream. We talked about stuff that was like two years later, they had, they opened up this secret tunnel in the pyramids and we knew already about it and asked him. And when the subject came up, he all of a sudden go like, whoa, where do you guys, where does this come from? And, and anyway, but, and we talked about places inside the pyramid, like the, the there's a shaft called the unfinished chamber. And at the time of the interview, he was very media savvy. He like, he knew how to play us, uh, but he allowed us access to that shaft, which, you know, and then he immediately left after the interview. And then his guys were like, Oh, we didn't have the key today for this shaft. And they said, Oh, we <laughs> yeah, come back right. tomorrow. And then they were like, Oh, you only had permission today. Sorry. And all, all this stuff. But anyway, it was again, we got there and they didn't, ex you know, that we kind of got our foot in the door pretty deep. And, you know, before, you know, like a, a normal archaeologist would have never gotten close to that Sai Havas. And we got to interview him because it was for American TV. So. 
and you're just some like uh, extreme bike rider. They don't they don't think you're going to undercover uh, any information. On it. What? We weren't any threat. Yeah, not a threat. What's what's the mainstream media story of the pyramids? And number two, where do you think they came from? Uh, you got to go to my website. Yeah. And go go okay. to um, past adventures, and go to Egypt. And there's my Egypt story. But then there's a link, series, mysteries, and cover-ups about the Great Pyramids. And click on that. And I have it all written down, mainly stuff that I learned from books and theories and stuff. But there's Amazing. a lot of stuff that most people have never heard about the pyramids, and including this famous Guntenbrink shaft, which we talked about it um, like like I said, like three or four years before they had this 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 life opening of the shaft in front of you know like worldwide it was live tv a live uh, pod, uh, broadcast so but i mean i mean we're gonna point i'll point people to the website in the show links and stuff but i mean i just think there's so many things you can't answer even with science in this day and age it's like the i was listening to on rogan the other day and they were talking about where the quarry is that they got some of these stones and the size of it. It doesn't make sense that they even could transport them to come and build the pyramid there. Yeah, it's often there is theories that they were basically poured, you know, they they make a concrete basically because they did in some of the blocks I have read in the past, they found like human hair or they found in one block um materials from different regions of egypt in the same block you know so so really? uh, so there is those theories too and it kind of makes sense i mean uh, a bunch of slaves uh dragging those 40 ton rocks uh up to the top of a of a whatever 300 feet tall pyramid doesn't really make much sense yeah but i mean you've definitely got more knowledge than me but i mean it also leads to the thought of like a way more prehistoric uh, civilization as well, you know, that begs those questions if you want to get deeper into it. But we're probably digressing on a mountain bike podcast, but I'm fascinated. And that's why I wanted to chat to you. It's like, yes, there's the mountain bike, and it, but it's it's this vehicle that's taken you all over the world and allowed you to live out some of your passions, which you probably would have loved to go to some of these places anyway. And I have as well. I've been to places like Iran, which I don't think I would have gone. Well, I know I wouldn't have gone without a bike. I I haven't been brave enough to go there yet. (laughs) Yeah, no, but you've been indoctrinated by living in the States. (laughs) It was, uh, yeah, that's probably a bit different when you come in on that passport. But it was fascinating, especially the people. Beautiful place, beautiful people, lovely food and... And uh, yeah, I mean, I count myself very lucky to be able to do that. And we get paid to do it as well, which is you got to almost pinch yourself. Yeah. And it's those personal experiences, like you just said, the local people to meet them and to to share a moment of their life, to get invited in a hut for a cup of tea. And then initially they, they, they often can be very skeptical and they look at you like another rich person. Uh, white guy who comes to their country and they have no idea why but then what's it's funny then they see you ride the bike and the big because they can all relate to a bike they do have usually bikes and then they see you do tricks and stuff and then all of a sudden that question you ask half an hour earlier about going with your bike over that mountain pass behind their village 
doesn't sound that stupid to them anymore and they get really enrolled and and then they open up and then they ask you questions about your personal life so do you have a wife and how is life there and and that's those are the moments that i think are the most special from all these trips yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more just i'll never forget a breakfast we had in iran and we stayed with the guide's friends in a very small sort of town um, and we shared their tea and we had a hubbly bubbly or shisha pipe, which I know from, from my country as well. Um, but the next morning they lit a fire and on coals they had aubergine and then they made some egg and tomato mix. I mean, they spent, and it was gentlemen that did this as well. And, and they were super proud to share it with uh, these foreigners and, and show them their sort of local cuisine. And I think it's those things that you just never forget. I mean, the riding was great, don't get me wrong, but those sort of memories you have with some of the people you meet. Yeah, that that's that what makes travel so special, you know, the different cultures and people and to get to dive into their world for a moment. And uh, how many times have you sat with yourself and go, yeah, probably only a few more years of this, then it's probably probably over. I mean, at 57, that, that must have happened. I also sometimes think, I'm like, yeah, a few more years, might need to think of something else. And then a few more years go by and you reinvent yourself and you you learn how to add value in different ways. How, how's that been for you? Oh, yeah, it happens all the time. And it's part of it. And you know, it has to do with a lot of different factors, but sometimes, you know, you you feel like there should be something else or not. And sometimes, um, you know, there's the constant change of things. But yeah, that happens all the time. You do have to reinvent yourself and go with the times and understand and get creative again and find the value. You know, like there's like... There's like so many people eating off the pie now, you know, like I, I almost had the pie for myself in that kind of world, not outside of racing. The pie, the little pie that was outside of the racing pie, the big racing pie, I had it, you know, for myself with a few people only to share. Now that pie, yeah, it has grown, but there's like, there's probably like at least 5,000 people trying to eat from that pie in the in, worldwide, you know? who want to do a living one way or another, be it a free rider or be it an adventurer, be it a guide or an influencer or a trials guy or a, or a, you know, dirt jumper or all these people, are, you know, trying to, you know, eat from that pie. So the pie is getting smaller and you have to find ways to prevail. And then sometimes these new trends creep up on all of us and they all of a sudden overtake everything until the dust settles and people realize, well, maybe that was a little bit overrated. Maybe, you know, Snapchat is not that important for our market or whatever, or even Instagram, you know, the whole influencer thing got to a point where, you know, where I, I feel like the dust is settling now and the, the, the real deals, the people who bring value are the ones who are uh, surviving and successful. And there's, I'm, and I'm not saying that, you know, a lot of influencers are really good too, and they're bringing a lot to the table, but there's also a lot of them who don't have much to offer. And I think these are the ones get weeded out, but it's the same with racing, you know. Some guys, you know, they win and they deliver above and beyond racing results and they keep being sponsored and others might struggle to have a ride. So 
So, yeah. Yeah, so that was something we probably talked about offline. Like, you've seen so many different cycles of the sport, the bikes, the media. Yeah, I mean, let's let's jump in. Like, how have you seen it changed? And where is it going? <laughs> um, well, yeah, it's... You know, like, part of me used to be, or, you know, I'm still proud of the fact that I had 500 front covers on a magazine. I mean, any pro mountain biker who lived in that era knows um, how hard it is to have 10 career covers. And I don't think there's many riders of any that have over 200, 250 covers, you know, that's probably a handful. But um, so that was something I was proud of. But now, but now print media is so irrelevant to people go like, Dude, you're getting old. You live it, you know. Like it's not like, wow, you did that in that world, and you're still doing this. It's more like if you would bring that up, it would really date you. And and it's like, oh, we don't give a shit. Print is, you know. But print is what built that whole foundation for me. A- advertisements. The sponsors would actually spend money on athletes and influencers. Imagine that, guys. You know, it wasn't all up to you to market yourself and them and their product. It's like they would actually put money into an advertisement campaign and make an image and and they would send you around, which, yeah, I, I know that still happens to a degree, but not for the majority of the people out there. And so it's it's it has changed a lot and it will constantly change. And and um, yeah, so so print is one of the things, but I, I always try to find make myself leverage it leverage what i do i see so many people that do a photo shoot and then they go home and do another photo shoot tomorrow and and then they do another photo shoot next week and it's like and what's going to happen with those photos oh this one magazine run it and it's like shit if i do a photo shoot i try to do it right and i'm going to run it in 20 magazines make a tv show out of it use it on my website give the photos to my sponsor so they can use them for ads and really leverage it and then making things that also has a lifespan. I think that was also a big advantage I've had. Like you can watch one of my adventures from 10 years ago and it's still relatively relevant. I mean, you might notice that, oh, these forks are pretty dated on that bike because that's what we wrote like 10 years ago. But other than that, the the riding and the, the experience and all that is still there. And, so some of these TV shows I've done, they're still airing five, ten years later, and they also opened me the door to get a little bit of mainstream media. It's pretty hard in mountain biking. I mean, some some of the guys like Danny and Fabio achieved that, and some of the World Cup and Olympic stuff achieves that, and like Rampage. But other than that, it's pretty hard for athletes to get mainstream exposure. So So all that. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point because back in the day, trials you could do in a in a small location. Mountain biking you couldn't; you needed to be out in the mountains. So that is quite a unique skill set you had that that you were able to leverage, and, and you've done a lot of mainstream stuff, like Olympic Games ceremonies, which to me is you know it's the most mainstream sporting thing there is, and then starring in TV shows. Like, how does that come about? You you played yourself in Pacific Blue. I mean, I remember seeing the the show. Yeah, it was one of those last um, of these really corny Hollywood TV cop shows, and it was about the Santa Monica Bike Police. 
And there was a lot like Baywatch, except they were wearing more clothes. And, um, <laughs> and I living here near Los Angeles, you know, we do, we used to get the odd calls for, uh, commercials or auditions in Hollywood. And usually it was for commercials, sometimes for a little cameo or for a stunt in a film or series. But this was a full on bike. It was all about the bike police in Santa Monica. So it was all about bike stuff and they needed permanent stuntmen and people and, the first season, I did a lot of stunt work for them, which was really cool. And we did some really cool stuff. And then um, the second season, they switched to track bikes. And track had that horrible Y bike that was really, <laughs> yeah, recogni yeah, yeah. really recognizable. Super recognizable, yeah. And at the time, I... The Y Glide, I think. GT and track were like, you know, like, and I was like, I'm not going to do stunts anymore because even if I had a wig on and had looked like a female cop on a bike with like fake boobs and jumping the bike over something, people would still know by my style that, oh, that's Hans, you know, he did that 270 off that, you know, so, and I was kind of really busy with other stuff too. So I was kind of letting it go and said, I'm not going to do stunts on that Y bike. So then they gave me a part as myself in the show where I could, be the the eastern european coach for the bike guy and i would have always a, <laughs> a rivalry with one of the cops and we would try to outdo each other and they and as much as you think it, it's easy to play yourself if they give you a fake eastern european accent and even structure the sentences in the script even more backwards than my english already is it was sometimes actually not that easy to play yourself but anyway, I, I had a few guest appearances and that. And that was pretty cool because as corny as that show was, it aired in over 100 countries. And I think it still airs in a few nowadays. But what's amazing is, Needles, is how many people I have met over the years who told me they started mountain biking because of that TV show. And that's kind really? of cool. Yeah. So that's many. really cool. So many. I would say I almost, when I'm out and about, I meet one once every, you know, once a week or also, every two weeks, I meet somebody who tells me their Pacific Blue story and how they got into biking because of that. No ways. Yeah, I mean, I 100% remember the show. Uh, and it, I mean, yeah, I must have seen it on TV. It's not like I saw reruns on, well, anything. It was back when we were only watching TV. I still remember the bike because, yeah, you were on your GT, of course. And then I remember the Y-Glide and some of those cheesy... Um, scenes where yeah you were like going up against the guy is the pay any good yeah you know you got hollywood stunt rates you know what are we talking man they probably like the stunt rates back then a day rate would be 800 dollars, but then you can get you can get more money for you know like you say let's say you did a 360 you say yeah, okay, danger pay yeah for every 360 i get another 200 bucks or so and yeah, then, yeah. I, and then I, I, mean, I try to be the perfectionist, but you know how the stuntmen work. They do 10 on purpose that they don't pull off, so they get paid for 11, and then they pull <laughs> the 11s off. I wouldn't play quite that game. But then you get also residuals on top of that and for reruns. So it, it, it was some good money, but in my case, especially when I got to play myself, I got my sponsors front and center, you know, in all, all over t mainstream TV, and that was kind of... I hope they appreciated it. Who knows? <laughs> well, I'm sure they did. Surely you had some bonuses or TV bonuses back then. I mean, I know magazine uh, bonuses exist. Or was it a bit yeah. tough back then? No, I, I just had 
most of my deals were never bonus based based um i just got my salary and didn't have to deal with all that and didn't have to justify every every social media story you know and with numbers people would just see the overall and the pure amount you know of of the stuff you've done and at the time, I think people also didn't realize maybe how much of a ripple effect these shows had on people. And, you know, but it just added, there was a lot of crazy stuff going on that caught us, like, you know, like stuff like that or being, you know, in a big commercial or being at the Olympics closing ceremony or being involved with the first X Games. Those were all all that stuff happened and it was kind of just like normal, you know? And it's like, yeah. it's like, I always say like, there's a lot of parallels with Danny McCaskill's uh, career and mine. And I remember when Danny's f first uh, video went viral, I think, when was that in 2008, maybe or, or 10 or probably eight. Uh, and he got phone calls from like David Letterman show and the New York times. And he would just, uh, Oh no, I'm busy riding with the lads in in Edinburgh this weekend. You know, like you know, like he he saw this was just normal and this would come all the time. It's like, no, dude, you you don't get a New York Times interview or a David Letterman appearance. You know, like nobody gets that other than Lance at the time. You know, yeah. So, but um, and that's how we were a bit back then too. So many things happened and we sometimes didn't even know until years later how special it was or how cool it was. You know, we were just going along and doing it. Did he, did he go on Letterman? Like, was he, t how did you find out that they would call him? Like, are, are you in touch with him quite a lot or would he call you for advice? A, a little bit. Uh, I, I would, we were just in touch and I, I know he, he's, he early hooked up with Tarek, uh, who met, started managing him. Maybe, I don't know if he managed him then, but we were a little bit in touch and the word just got out. They, somebody told me that and I, I don't think he went. I know he, I don't think he's ever went to Letterman, but, um, he, he might have, but, um, some other trials guys have been on there in the past way before him. Uh, but, um, and he's done his share of mainstream stuff, Danny, you know, like big time, you know, so so no shortage for him. But he's he's in a league on his own, you know, with, with only less than a handful of other guys. So if you're there, then you're laughing. Yeah, yeah. that's it's super interesting that that like, I mean, I grew up as a kid and we do a bit of trials probably because of watching your stuff on the on the, you know, like the stairs at the back of the house. And then we'd go dirt jumping and stuff and we'd do a bit of trials, but it was like, it's crazy how far trials mountain bike. I don't think it gets the credit it should actually. If you think about how mainstream it, it gets like a mountain bike, you know, my mom would, would tell me about, um, Hey, this, this guy's doing this weird video on jungle gyms or whatever it is. And it's Danny. I know exactly who she's talking about. And the same yeah. would probably go for Fabio. Like, that, that snow video that I think that, I mean, he obviously done a lot of videos, but that was one of the bigger viral ones that, that launched him. And they're probably the modern day version, like you say, of you, of, of being able to hit the mainstream as well as the core audience of, of mountain biking, would you say? Yeah. And, and not to forget, they, 
like going to the next levels of of pushing the levels you know back in the days what my level was that level you know and i was that was even the time i was cocky enough to say i write everything that anybody writes you know those days are long over and now you find in every village across the world a couple of kids that can do stuff that i could never do but but the the thing is with those guys is yeah they they had this uh, this appeal this mainstream appeal that that you know the trials guys were always a bit the unwanted stepchild that's how we felt back in the early 90s when it was all about racing yes it was all about cross country then downhill a little bit of slalom and then there was the trials guys but the trials guys were the guys who entertained everybody we had our competition right near the pits where everybody was watching all the spectators had a beer in hand and they loved it it was just not the glamorous things partly a lot of the early uh, mountain biking team managers came from road cycling and cross country was the closest to road cycling so they kind of uh, flocked in that direction a bit more but um like like I remember, like you say, trials is a unique thing and it opened a lot of doors. And a lot of fairly famous professional mountain bikers have a trials background, you know. And I remember one year I, I was invited to Australia, to the Australian uh, National Championships. I think it was 92. And GT did brand this promo tour with me. And at the same time, Oakley invited John Tomek. And John Tomek was the superstar of mountain biking. But I had the advantage I could do some shows. I could go to a TV studio and hop down whatever and jump over this and that. And I ended and I happened to be on the first night there in, in a in kind of a David Letterman style TV show. And and then the phone the whole week I was like from one live TV show to the next. And nothing with John Tomek because nobody had an I had any clue who Hans Ray was. And they didn't know either who John Tomek was. Mountain biking was too new. It was in Australia. But that Hans Ray guy, he could do something that we've never seen before. So I got to get get go on TV. And that's kind of the the advantage the trials guys have. They can they can take the sport outside of the race course and bring it to the people, you know. Like in modern days, these urban freeride competitions and the urban downhills. Yeah, I was going to say, it's almost like the top guys are not going to the urban downhill races, but it is taking downhill mountain biking to the people. And maybe yeah. from then they'll tune into world cup racing and, and go from there. I was, I was about to say the same thing. It's super interesting and it is a similarity. Yeah. But you also run the risk that the world cup downhiller might be left out of this public views. And these people are, you know, there's a couple of guys, I don't even know their names who only do the urban downhills. And they might be better known in certain circles than Bruni and Minar because the people who haven't, you know, like it's just like for a long time, Americans didn't fo uh, follow Formula One. And ever since the Race of Survive series, like everybody is now a Formula One fan and understands also the sport and the heritage and the characters and all that. And, and yeah, I, I feel like even the, the UCI World Cup should have at least one urban race in on its schedule, you know, just to mix it up. And I was thinking, I was thinking that. Think I'm only going to suggest it because I'm not part of it because it's it's super dangerous. Um, oh yeah, it's, it's, I mean Slavic's crash in this last one. 
and he was going for the overall title and Slavic's a four cross you know Slavic obviously yeah um, and he's one of the names you do know but there are a lot of um, South American names are incredible street bike handlers obviously crazy talent and fair to say they wouldn't feature at a World Cup so it would be cool to see if it was able to do it but you would probably find um, some interesting names we don't know could say that they've won a World Cup but you'd have that little asterisk, right? But I still think it would be cool if there was a way to do it. To, to That would bring it a little bit more to the masses. I agree. You know, just like you have an F1, you have the Monte Carlo uh, race yeah, course true. in the city. You know, you can do, you can have one of those. And it doesn't have to be as gnarly as the race um, I watched yesterday in Mexico. Or I, I only watched one little clip, but uh, it looked pretty gnarly. Uh, it can be, a, you know, it can be a bit, maybe have a little more dirt in it too, you know, find the city where it's not just staircases, you know, so. Yeah, it's probably possible to make it a little bit more safe, not safe. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there are risks. And you probably have a lot of the top guys not featuring because of safety and things like that. So, yeah, they might not like it, but me and you are sure going to vote for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, make we'll the hardline make the hard line part of the World Cup too. <laughs> yeah. I've got dogfish here in uh, South Africa. We can, we can say that we need to put dogfish in as well. Really throw a cat amongst the pigeons. But that's the sort of, yeah. I mean, the sport of downhill, <clears throat> excuse me, is evolving, and we've got a lot of lot of changes. But how, how have you seen the sport evolve? That was definitely a topic we wanted to chat about because it's so interesting to see it. You, you, yes, you come from a trials background, but you raced all the disciplines. You ride all the bikes or have ridden them from cross country to taking a ski lift up and riding a downhill bike down. How have you seen this, the sport in general? Like, how have you seen it? (laughs) This is going to be a weird analogy. You're like the David Attenborough of mountain biking. You've (laughs) seen the sport evolve in front of your very eyes. Yeah. I mean, the sport, you know, the, the cool thing about people often talk about that golden era and the heydays. And you know, what made it really cool is that nobody had expectations. You know, okay. like we all went to a race or an event and we went there to ride and have fun. And then some rider would show up we'd never seen before and who would smoke us all or would do really good. Or there would be a new invention, a new suspension design, or even before suspension, another little part that nobody had seen before I would try out. And some of them were really stupid and didn't go anywhere. But that was all part of it. and there was, And there was no money really in it per se at the very beginning at least so it wasn't all about that so people were more friendlier it was more like this this group of camaraderie where it was um, not so result based and and i think that made it kind of cool and then of course the bikes evolved a shitload you know from i mean i remember full-on rigid bikes skinny little tires i remember our team they were sponsored by Michelin like early on with those horrible green tires they had. And the biggest, I think, was a 2.1. They might have had a 2.2. And I remember us saying, dude, you need to have, we need bigger tires. You know, oh, no, not really, you know. And then same with stems. We need shorter stems. You know, like the norm were 130, 140, 150 stems. And Asking for a 100 or a 110 stem was like, 
ah, you don't need that. Just like roll your handlebars back, you know, they would say, or, you know, like, and the same with riser bars and, and every single thing. And then suspension slowly came in and there was a lot of trial and error with that. And the disc brakes, brakes were, brakes are the most important thing on a trial spike. And we wrestled, you know, it took a long time for disc brakes to become good. And even then they weren't necessarily great for trials because disc brakes are designed to work into one direction, the rotation of the you going forward. But on trials, when you hop, the brake has to work backwards to, you know, the way you're hopping on the back wheel and, and, and standing on an edge. So, so all that, but, but yeah, technology, then event formats and, and then the whole perception of the, of the public, you know, that people got into it and, and embraced it and accepted you as a rider and didn't like give you the evil eye on the trail, you know, like I, I know we still have conflict somewhere at places, but Hey, it's gotten a lot better. And a lot of these organizations like people for bikes in America or IMBA, they have done so much for educating people and to build bridges and, and to make it an overall better experience to educate people about purpose-built trails, you know, like people, we would ride whatever trail or dirt road there was. Nobody ever asked, you know, like it wasn't until 90, early nineties that this guy in Wales, David Davis, who just got in the hall of fame last year for it, started building the first purpose-built mountain bike trails. And those were those trail centers in Wales that we all know about, you know, Cody Bryan and whatever they all called. And then slowly people started building tracks with berms and stuff. And at the beginning, they were a little bit too hardcore that only the hardcore guys could really experience the backside of a jump or the, the flow or the G-force or the, you know, so so it, that was the next step. But at least we had purpose-built trails and then... And eventually we had to groom it down. And that's something you could easily learn from the ski industry. You know, the ski resorts obviously are there to make money and the money they make with the easy runs, with the family runs, with the blue runs. And we didn't have enough of those in mountain biking. So all those things, you know, from trails to bikes to and not, not at least the way we dress. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, like... It's probably tough. What's one of one of the best innovations on the bike for you? On the bike, I've always said uh, the proper post. Yeah, I believe, I believe so to, because just we just to help a bike transform itself from a climbing bike to a descending bike with just like the push of a thumb. Yeah, yeah, and we the, the little bike club we have here in Laguna, the Rats, who are also in the Hall of Fame, but they they were kind of the original free riders and they would ride super steep stuff. And we would always have a quick release at least, or one of those high rides that Joe Breeze invented. There was a spring on your seat post that would, you could sit on and it goes down. And then when you release it, it goes back up. And we would, we would always do that, adjust the seat and ride super steep stuff. And when those seat posts finally came about uh, much later, um, you know, I was definitely jumping on it. And, I and even that was a tough sell. Even some of my friends who write that steep stuff, it took them two years to adopt to it. And so many people, ah, you don't need that. And and then all of a sudden, I remember Wade Simmons once being on a trip with, with Richie and me in Nepal. And Richie and I had those had the posts on our bikes, those early Crankbrother ones. And Wade was like, oh, you don't need that stuff. And like two days into the ride, when he heard us like 50 times a day, 
click, you know, go up and down our seat for and play around on the side of the trail with stuff. He would like, I need one of those things. Hook me up, you guys, you know. <laughs> and so all these things, you know, take time sometimes to evolve. I've always taken my health very seriously, but I must admit it's very tough to have a balanced diet every single day, especially when I'm traveling and on the road a lot. Then I found Athletic Greens. I'm so excited to partner with them personally and for this podcast. I actually started taking AG1 long before this partnership even came about. So what is this stuff? Think of AG1 as your all-in-one health insurance. I know I do. I've never been one for taking a million different supplements or vitamins. What a mission. So this is the perfect all-in-one solution. With one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy recovery, and helps enhance your focus. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals, artificial anything, all while still tasting good. What I find is it's beyond easy to use and that's definitely what I need. All you need to do is mix one scoop of AG1 with water and take it first thing in the morning. After a long flight or travel, it is a must for me too. It's that simple. They also make travel packs which I like to take on the road and to events. I notice a big difference when I include AG1 into my routine. I feel more focused and energized to get my day going. I seem to be more alert as well. Let's all be honest. We all know we don't eat enough vegetables or consume the healthiest meals some of the time, especially when we get busy. We all want something quick and easy which will help us in life. AG1 supports better sleep quality, recovery, mental clarity, and alertness. Now, I don't care what you do. I think we can all agree this is super important. AG1 is trusted by many professional athletes and health experts. To make trying it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash moving the needle. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash moving the needle to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. I'll link it in the show notes as well. Yeah, but it's 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 one thing like with the technology or like suspension forks getting better, but this is such a simple thing that you guys had to trial and error and figure out and go, huh, do we really need our seat this high? Like a simple thing, like a seat being out the way or you going why is the bike handling so terribly uh, should we try a shorter stem like you know even at when i was young short stems existed or shorter not you know not maybe not 50s at the time but it came pretty quick so even i was spoiled and i started on a fully rigid bike at my first downhill race <laughs> yeah yeah old school no that's yeah that's um you know like kali Dave Cullinan and myself were the, the first guys I knew of who really like were talking about riser bars. And the thing is, back in those days in the late 80s, a, an expensive mountain bike would cost around $1,000, maybe 1200 or so. And only the cheap bikes, the ones $600 and below, had had these curved riser bars on them. But they were often not bent in the right way and they were not wide enough and all that. But there was, would be the odd, weird, no-name model out there uh, from some obscure brand that would be perfect. And we would write those things. And they might have not even been like 
strong enough for what we were doing even then. But and people would look at us and like, oh my God, your bike looks like a $500 bike, you know, like it looks like cheesy or cheap, you know, because you have the riser bars on. And and why don't you just like, you know, they didn't understand the, the sweep and the rise and how it would feel comfortable and give it a better feeling than those horrible straight bars. They literally had a, a piece of bamboo stick, you know, like it wasn't bamboo, obviously, but but a straight bar, super narrow. I mean, in the 500s, you know, like 500 millimeter kind of. <laughs> so it was crazy. <laughs> Is that the crappest thing from back in the day? straight bars and narrow or is there a crapper what's something that you had to try or your sponsor said oh this is the next best thing and you're like i'm not riding that or we pay you to ride it is there anything that pops to mind the only thing is those what was those called those shimano air brakes or so or air somebody somebody who listens here oh. must know more about it it was these wheels. They were super complex and heavy, and they had these weird brake systems. But they were so heavy, it it, it almost doubled the weight of your bike. The wheels, and and it was before disc brakes, and it was like a mix between. I don't even. I can barely I, remember a, a mix it, between a trump brake and a. Yeah, was air. it on the on some of the Schwinn bikes? Uh, was that air maybe, shifting? I don't maybe remember. They, there was they were only around stuff. for one season, and they might have <laughs> had a couple guys race with them. But that was something that didn't quite go. What I about the stem? Much... The stem that had suspension in it or flex? <clears throat> the, the stem. The flex stem, yeah. And the flex handlebars and the flex seat posts. They had all of that. That, but, can't, um, that can't be good. Yeah, that was kind of sketchy. I was never, yeah, especially doing the trial stuff and, you know, front wheel hops. I wanted something solid where I can, you know. I mean, yes, we did a bit for, we ended up riding with suspension forks. When they first came out, people were very skeptical. They were like, we don't really need that, most mountain bikers would say. And then people weren't <laughs> sure if they, people weren't sure if they would be strong enough or maintenance friendly or, and then there was also an added, added price for this, these forks. And I remember when, when I started riding them for my trial stuff and those first quadras and I would do front wheel hops on them, I remember it was like, it was a pretty big selling point for them because like, look, he can do front wheel hops on those and they don't break, you know? And it gave, you know, I know a few people were like, oh, okay, maybe I give it a try. But there was a long time. There was so many things and that's just how life is, you know, you... <clears throat> You know, we all we all thought we could live maybe without a cell phone ten years ago, right? When the first ones came out, and now it's like <laughs> not going to go back. So no, but sometimes you probably wish you could go back. Yeah, that's true. That's why we have gravel bikes now. So it's like mountain biking in the eighties and nineties with, <laughs> yeah. with a rigid bike with skinny tires and a narrow handlebar. <laughs> I'll be dead honest. I I don't know. I haven't got the the bug of the gravel bike hasn't bitten me quite yet. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, so you don't have a gravel bike either then? I'll oh no, I have you. one, but I I use <laughs> oh, it on okay. the I use it on the road. But you are a dinosaur. I saw PD chirped you on your Instagram. <laughs> what do what you, you say? Um, no, I don't know. I think you were saying. I think you hopped over like a prehistoric rock or something in your driveway, or made a joke oh. about. It. And then he said something about 
but the person on the bike is also prehistoric. Oh yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. But he yeah, gets to chirp because he's he's done some projects with you and. Well, and, it's uh, true. It's true. Hey, we're all getting old, but I mean, you seem to embrace that. Is there ever times when, like, what does the future hold for you? Like, is there a re- do you retire or not? Like, how does that look? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't, you know, I'm just cruising along still, you know, like, I mean, there was a couple of things I just wanted to say and they left my mind already, but um, the, the bottom line is it's like, I'm still having fun and it's a cool, and I find new niches and new ways where I can prevail or, or be at least different enough from most everybody. And I feel like I can still inspire people to write, which is a big motivator. And ultimately, when I look out and I look at some of these billionaires out there, all they want to have a lot, all they want to do, a lot of them is have a lifestyle like some of us pro writers be able to do our hobby and job and travel to cool places and write with friends and and have fun. And I get to do that. You know, it might not be a billionaire from it, but. I've done all right and I'm still having fun and I think that's that's worth a lot and 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 for the long time I was always thinking okay um so my plan b is um eventually I become a marketing guy for one of the uh, you know one of my sponsors you know I understand that I have a good feeling I think I could be a good addition and like about 5 6 7 years ago I realized oh shit I'm over 50 now Nobody wants a fifty-year-old marketing guy, you know. I guess that plan is—I guess that plan is out the window. Even though I might still would be able to teach him a thing or two, but um, it's all about people. I think put too much emphasis on age, and you know, age is the one single thing none of us can change. So yeah. why fight it? Why deny it? Why, you know, that's like there's a lot of other things I can change in life or in my past, but age is. That's just what it is. It all comes and goes every day, every night, every plant, every animal, and pretty much every human, as for now at least. <laughs> but I mean, you get to speak to that. I mean, I'm 38, if memory serves me correct, turning 39. Right. Don't feel it. Definitely oh, look it, but I don't feel it, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm catching you though, slowly but surely. But you, you get to tell me, like, does it catch up on you a little bit? Like, do you still feel as sort of young on when you do certain things as you did when you were twenties, thirties? No, I can feel the age now. I can, I can, I didn't for a long time. And and for a long time I was thinking, Oh my God, by the time I hit 40, I'm probably not going to get out of bed and I'm going to be hurting and all my, all the abuse, you know, the stuff we did on these Richard bikes with flat landings and, and all that stuff. But, but I, you know, all the way through 50, you know, like, I mean, one of my biggest trips was when I, uh, the one I'm probably the most proud of and the hardest was when we climbed uh, Mount Kenya and Kilimanjaro back to back. And that was really tough on, on, and that was when I was 50. And in the last few years, especially the trials riding, it's, it's physically so hard. You know, when I was young, I would be out there all day long riding six, seven hours, and it was just like normal. And you, you kind of took it for granted the fitness you've had, because now I do like ten back wheel hops, and I I get out of breath, you know. And you you realize, and then 
with that, you're not as flexible anymore, or your reactions are not as quick anymore, and then you write much less. I still write trials, but less. But that also, then you lose your timing or your confidence. You know, you always have to rebuild that confidence again. It's just like, I, I bet it's not different for a downhill or, you know, if you hit big jumps and then you haven't hit a big jump in a year, you you want to build up your confidence again, you know, even though you know you can still do it. And so anyway, so I yes, I do feel the age, but at the same time, you know, you don't have to, you know, try to match, you know, what, what the top guys do. I can find my own niches still where I can still actually do pretty good and prevail or, or do something that's at least meaningful and inspiring. And that's what I try to focus on these days, not to be the most extreme guy anymore or do stuff that nobody else can do. Yeah. I mean, excuse me, not, we haven't chatted for a while or cross paths at some events and then you lose touch and Hans is still doing it. And I don't get to see all your content. You don't get to see all mine. You're, You're sort of sometimes in your own niche, but the more I speak to you, I go, no, but this makes sense that you're still in the sport because some of your fan base is, is also getting older. And, and maybe if you step away, they might go, oh, Hans isn't riding anymore. Must be an age thing. Uh, but you're here living proof that at 57, you're now still a professional cyclist. So why can't someone be just a cyclist or, or a mountain biker or, or, or get that e-bike? And, and we're seeing a lot more of that. And do you think also a lot of you're, you've had to work a lot on your ego, like with age, you realize, okay, I can't do certain things and that's okay. Right. Have you had sort of that sort of reflection? Yeah, but that's, I just, yes, you have to deal with that. And sometimes you, you, you have to leave that at the doorstep. You have to embrace the new generations. You know, I mean, I was one of the first guys at, at the time, tweeting about Danny McCaskill's first video, you know, and because people were saying for years, who's going to be the next Hans Rey? And it wasn't just the guy who happened to beat me at the last competition. It was like, you know, who's going to take it to the next level. And I mean, Danny didn't just take it to the next level. He took it like a few notches up, but, um, you, you have to, yeah, you, you just have to be fine. Like there was a time and it might sound a bit weird, but, you felt like Billy the Kid, you know. Everybody want to draw you and and see if they faster with you on the on the revolver, and wherever you went, like the local kids would come out. Hey, look, we have this canyon gap, or we have this trials line, or we have this, and and Joe Smith did it from our local club. You know, can you do it? And you get to the point where you go like, let Joe Smith have it. You know, like I, I. I, I cannot like, you know, like take every challenge on, you know, like, and, and, and it, it, it was with that, not just with the extreme stuff, even with the endurance stuff, you sometimes ride and some average guy like is fitter than you, like, you know, even a guy you might work for you, you know, like beats you up the hill and it's like, well, I never got paid because I was fast, you know, and so, <laughs> so get off my back, you know. So, but it still is. It still must be draining, you know, when you think you can maybe have it. So, I mean, mentally, it's still a challenge to to go through those different phases, right? Oh yeah, and it's always stressful still, and also with the sponsors and make them understand it, and and especially in the last few years, there's a whole new. The world has changed, not just with politics and everything else, but there is literally 
a new generation moved in and they have different values and different objectives of the job and the standards and how it's done and what counts and sometimes they may or may not look at the big picture they just look what's uh, in front of them or what their boss is asking for or what gets them home early or, or whatever you know and and they probably also see a lot of things that i don't see and i try to learn those things and understand their goals so i can keep working with them and deliver results that mean something to them and not results where well we don't really care about all that stuff we only care about this stuff so that's the case then i'll focus a bit more on the stuff you care about but um for better or worse yeah sponsorship certainly has evolved as well with with mainstream well the internet being so mainstream and the medium we misuse and do you have like i have a little bit of anxiety like we're kind of contract workers right so at the end of a contract cycle even if you deliver like you said sometimes objective change marketing um uh, managers change roles um it, it I, I don't think people outside the industry or outside being sponsored would understand they wouldn't sympathize because it sounds like i'm complaining but I mean, you can probably understand like mo more than most because you've been in it so long. Is it, 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 you build up a certain level of anxiety, like, okay, we're in a two-year cycle. Hopefully we renew. Here's what I've given, you know, but it's quite tough. No, it is. It is stressful and it's, um, and you have to constantly throw wood in the fire, you know, and then it's not, it's not done with that, you know, like we were, your task, your work task expands, you know, we didn't have to, you know, like all of a sudden now besides racing and me training, uh, and then I organized these trial shows. And the next thing I organized an adventure trip, but I, I often produced those trips. I did all the research. I found the money. I find the film crew that has connections maybe to a TV distribution company. And then when the magazines comes out, I would work with the photographers. They would help too, but we would distribute, we would contact all the magazines. Hey, would you, you want to run this story? And you would do all this stuff. And the next thing is they want you to have a website. And I was one of the first to have a website. And then, the next thing is this is social media stuff. There's Facebook and Twitter and do we really need this or for work or and MySpace and <laughs> you, you know all these all these things and 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 the old things are still all there and they still want you to also test product for them and come and do personal appearances and consult and and the workload expands and often without a pay increase or you know and and so there's always new things and now they want you to yeah so anyway it's it's a you know now you have to provide the photos you don't even get a photographer anymore you well we need photos of you and for free and then and, and video content on a weekly basis and who's going to shoot all that who's going to edit it who's gonna you know like uh, who's gonna make sure i mean you cannot do it all on a selfie mode you know so so yeah, um, the job evolves and the tasks evolve, but um, it's it's stressful sometimes. It's not it's not easy, and that's why not so many people, you know, maybe necessarily last. What yeah, if you maybe smart the... and find a, a job that pays real money? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, the longevity isn't for everyone because it comes with a certain level of of definitely emotional stress as well with it. 
and that's tough to we've talked about it in ad nauseum in, in other podcasts but yes no job is guaranteed but certain career paths are pretty guaranteed once you have a certain level of experience and you don't f up too badly you you can probably find a job the pay might change a little bit but once you're an accountant you're an accountant if you're a certified one as well as a psychologist or a, a doctor um, and if you keep up your knowledge um, you can definitely stay in that industry but uh, sports yeah. are just just you know eats you up and spits you out well, people were used to athletes to just really do it. You know, I remember when I turned around 30, 32, it's like people were kept kept saying more often, hey, so it's about time to retire, right? Because the average rider would retire at 32. The one guy I looked up uh, to who didn't retire was Ned Overend. He still won a, a XC World Cup at 40. And and other I saw other sports like Lord Hamilton or Robbie Nash or rock climbers who who would carry on and find ways and and I would try to mimic that yeah so so um, but and then but back to the age thing people always say like uh, you know the, the, I think people put too much emphasis on the age thing and sometimes. It's, it actually works against me because you just get that stamp. Yeah, but he's a fucking old guy. But nobody looks at the fact, yeah, but he doesn't, he not only, you know, like the guys who buy the five or $10,000 bikes are not the 20-year-old um, guys. They are like their fathers or the parents buy the bike yeah. for them or the father buy it for themselves. But you also, like you said, you, you, you for me, what keeps me in the game is you inspire not only riders, you know, there is people, like you said earlier, who said, hey, I used to ride back in the 90s and I haven't ridden a bike because I had kids and a business, but now I'm riding again and I'm five years younger than you. And when I saw that you still ride, I started riding too, you know. And 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 But I think uh, what a couple guys told me, younger guys, it, it gives them hope that they maybe have a longer career, guys like who are following, you know, like trying to be professional riders and they now come to realize it doesn't have to be over after five years you know if they're smart and creative and you see so many guys now who carve themselves a niche or a path with with a way where they can do it for a long time it's not it's not it's not like limited to the peak of their career in terms of um, um how good or fast they can write you know they can keep their youtube channel going forever or they can evolve into other sports and other ways and and keep keep to keep uh, being part of this whole industry and that's that's kind of cool yeah i mean it's inspiring and i think um you said an interesting thing there and it's something i think about as well as <clears throat> excuse me is our oh, people could say your age you retired a while ago and you're getting on but well, what are we doing? We're trying to inspire people and leave the sport hopefully better than we found it. And you've definitely done that, hands down. Um, and that is a goal of mine as well. So I thank you because thank sometimes you. I think, fuck, Hans is old. What is he still doing? <laughs> and then, But then understanding your thought process, and that's why I thought this would be interesting to chat because uh, it is inspiring me to go, yeah, well, screw the age. I'm still enjoying it. I'm still hopefully inspiring guys through my local bike shop that we go ride on the trails just out the back or when I go on a trip and I'm in Europe and we produce some content to show you how cool these new bikes are, like you said, because hopefully the the, the guy that can afford it or wants the new bling bling stuff 
he goes out and, and he buys it. Fun has no expiry date, you know. <laughs> I you like can, that. You, you can still have fun uh, when you're 60, 70 or 80, I, I believe, or I hope. Uh, I, I don't know. You're going to hopefully get there before me. <laughs> well, factually, <laughs> you will. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I raced against Lopes when he was definitely getting on, and it, and it, it, it sort of motivated me to, to go fast, and I think it motivated him, you know, to be the old guy for lack of a better term, and smoke the youngers. And I think Greg's, I think that's a huge, huge motivating factor for Greg. Yes, he's so, so competitive, but, you know, when he needs a little bit of that extra motivation, we're like, right, be pretty cool if I smoke some of these young guys, you know, because I'm not meant to uh, on paper. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Some of those racers, I have to say, heads off, you know, like how they have the will to win, you know, that's the single most important thing. And to, to have that after all these years, you know, like that's, that's what a lot of people are happy with one world championship. They don't need to do a Kelly Slater, you know, and um, and to still have it in you that you maybe want to win a 12th world championship title. Yes, there's other records to chase, you know, the most and stuff, but but it takes a lot and not get distracted with all the fame and, and money that comes with some of these guys, you know, at that level. You know, it's easy to get distracted from, you know, where you... What you, sh- what you should do, you know, in order to stay on on the top of the podium. Yeah, like how how easy would it to be complacent? I just think distractions one thing, but just to be like, well, I've got so much money, why do I want to get up early and go to the gym and put myself through this pain? Because you have to, you have to have that delayed gratification to have a chance at a title, you know. So it, it yeah. is. It takes a special human, you know, like a Jordan, a Slater a Greg, I think, to, to stay in the at the top of your game. Yeah, then that there's a difference between a champion and a whatever you want to call that next level above it, you know. And you know, like maybe that's like the real definition of a legend, you know, for you know, somebody who can really prove it over a long time and across the whole field, you know. So yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like a in our sport, a, a PD that just never gave up. You know, um, yeah. I think I think that was so cool. You've obviously got close to him, Hans. What uh, what would you want to be known for uh, in your career or in your life now that you've got uh, more experience than just a career and the accolades? <laughs> I don't know, man. It's it. There's so many things that come together, and it's really it's hard to put it into one sentence or to narrow it down to one thing, but. I always liked the fact that I could inspire people. And, and I, I, that's the one thing about the social media. I, I get to hear these stories now from people. You know, videos you did like 30 years ago, people still remember every single one-liner in there, you know, as dumb and stupid as they might have been. And they took something from it that inspired them and, and they still think about it today. When I mean, you hear these stories of how they started because of this or that and and how they're still doing it that's that's a that's a nice thing to take from it all i um i've got on the tip of my tongue some of these one liners please tell me you've got some that you can remind me <sighs> yaman you have to. Uh, uh, yes. uh, yaman jamaica man island in the sun or uh, fucking uh, uh Hunch and Spew from the Thread movie uh, with Greg Herbold. 
and ah, uh, um, oh gosh, I can't think of them right now. But um, I've got a few. I I uh, definitely cosmic, saw a lot of these my cosmic movies. crystal, my cosmic crystal that communicates with the aliens and on my deck, or um, I don't know. Everybody else knows, <laughs> but remembers better. But yeah, there was just stupid stuff he would say in the, to the camera, but people would literally like um, remember them and and repeat them. <laughs> so, so what um what sort of trips have you got coming up, or what do you want to still achieve? Like you said, it's so difficult to find a unique location these days. Yeah, that's kind of why I you know I started to go to all the most remote places I could think of or and do and. And like I said, the the world's getting small in that way, especially doing stuff that people can relate to. You know, if you just traverse a random mountain range in Pakistan, it's it's hard to relate to the average person. You know, as much as the film might be an incredible adventure, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere, but it's so much easier to say I climbed Mount Fuji or Kilimanjaro or and or go to Machu Picchu or so, but. So that's why I kind of drifted to these urban adventures. And that was really fun to see these big cities and traverse them. And we usually pick these huge metropolitan cities that have incredible nature around them. But then you, you, you not only see this nature and this world-class mountain biking on the edge of the city, but then you dive into the city and there we could use the e-bikes and see all these different neighborhoods from the famous places to the to the less known neighborhoods or the sketchy neighborhoods and and show the whole culture. And it was the best way to explore these cities. And um, so we did trips. I did a bunch of trips like that. And I, I, I want to do next year another one of my urban adventures. And, and then I work with just like other little stuff, a lot of little e-bike projects. I'm working on a film with Shimano for this year. And Jack Carsey and myself, he's a 10-time Trials World Champion, and he can ride an e-bike. Oh, my God. It's like, it's pretty crazy. But we're thinking about doing a, a, a little film project together. And then I have a new resort partner in Switzerland, this and this, Sid Rune, that's in the, in, near the uh, Gotthard Mountain in, in central Switzerland. And I'm going to work with them and do some projects there. So, yeah. I, I'll keep busy. I'll keep it global, internationally. I, you know, I chat set back and forth. I have a second home in England with my wife. She's from there, and so sometimes we in California, sometimes in England, and um, yeah, we'll just um, we just keep posting, influencing people. <laughs> <laughs> influencing. What a terrible word, but yeah, keep inspiring. I think we'll yeah. let you with that one, and. Thanks, um, bro. Is it your charity? You part of the charity? No, it's my wife's and mine. We started it together. Uh, we still run it single-handedly, all volunteer-based, and it's a it's a non-profit called Wheels for Life. We give bikes to people in need of transportation in developing countries. Done a lot of projects, most of them, but not all. Uh, most of them in, on your continent, uh, especially in 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 uh, Eastern Africa and. Tanzania, Uganda, and Kenya. Amazing. Malawi, and but but like thirty-two countries, we've given away sixteen thousand bikes. You know, often the kids have to walk to school for like ten miles because they don't have public transportation or they don't have a bike or anything. You know, so they have to walk, and they, then they have to come home and 
walk another two miles to fetch water and carry 20 gallons of water back to their hut and uh, people bring their food to the market on the bike and and um, yeah all kinds of all kinds of ways bikes can really be a, a game changer for some of these people and some of these people initially I met them on my travels and see how the bikes had a completely different meaning than for me for us it was a, a sports object a toy yeah. and for them having a bike or not can be life-changing and can can be it can it can be the tool that gets you out of that vicious poverty cycle and so that's what we've been doing man that's amazing to hear it um i'm definitely a link to it in the show notes and uh, i've been supporting an ambassador for a, a charity here called pedal project and also they're, they're using the bike holistically to help uh, kids affected by traumatic events, uh, either that they've directly had or seen, because um, a lot of these kids um, are before the age of six are having three or four traumatic events, which can then lead to really tough emotional uh, issues, and and they're really on the back foot. Anyway, they so they're using the bike to get them out to trails and the mountains just to get them out in nature. And if you think about how lucky we were, we just went racing and we didn't even know the effect we had, right? Just being in nature. Yes, it was this competition thing, but being away from the distractions and, and trauma, I think we're so lucky. So to hear you talk about that made me think of that on on how simple a bike is, how life-changing it can actually be. How powerful it is. Yeah, bikes yeah. bikes are super powerful. And there's a lot of different ways to enjoy them and ride them and have benefits from them. So, yeah. Yeah, good for you. Keep on going. All these things are good. No, well, I'll uh, I'll send you the this, the the info on it, and I'm going to link to yours, and I'll chat to my guy to check out yours. Maybe there's some synergy at some point when you come down to the African continent. You'll have to let me know when you when you're down, or invite you to Cape Town again. I know you. Did you end up riding down Table Mountain? Um. Or what was that like? You did no, some trial I stuff down there. What was that? Yeah, we rode at Lion's Head and we rode at a bunch of different places. I always wanted to ride Blattenglip Gorge um, off Table Mountain, which is a spitty gnarly hiking trail yeah, that yeah, goes yeah. down the front side. And I never got to do it. I, we tried to poach it once. It's pretty illegal for bikers. And something happened that the trail randomly was completely closed for there had something happened that morning and think we never got to go back so but yeah that um i think yeah we were on top there with bikes though we did we shot some photos on top with bikes and maybe right down the backside. but yeah you must see how uh, how much trail network there is now i mean i could take really? you riding a different trail network for two three weeks and we wouldn't do all there's so many kilometers professional really? built, marked yeah the trail centers you can ride so if you look down from Table Mountain, left is the signal hill. You're you legally can ride around that now. And then over the left side, there's a there's a trail, beautiful trail in Camps Bay. I'll have to send you some links. But yeah, I'm uh, I think there's going to be an offline uh, project going with could be an you, urban adventure. Get you out yeah, oh, huge urban adventure for sure. It'll be cool to host you. Yeah, better Hans. Yeah. I, uh, this has been great. Like I said, I've lost touch with you as well. And I'm like, yeah, what's that old fart still doing? But now I'm seeing you, you're still loving it. You're inspiring people. So um, if there's anything we missed, they can follow you, I guess, on Instagram. Are you on TikTok? 
We didn't miss anything. We talked about it all. <laughs> no, I'm not doing TikTok. I had to throw the line somewhere. I'm doing Instagram. I'm Me doing too. Instagram. I'm doing Facebook. I'm doing YouTube channel with a lot of not only my old stuff but also new stuff. And my my Twitter account got hijacked and that's gone now. So that's the goner. But so yeah, you can find me there or on my website. As always, actually, I keep it updated. So. Wicked. Well, uh, folks, this was Moving Neil podcast. Just got one request. If you like the show, give it a follow or share it with a friend. And that was Hans No Way Ray. What a special episode. So uh, send him a direct message. Check what he's up to. Get inspired. Till the next one. Peace.